could there be too much scientific content? Maybe there is. I had a mentor in graduate school who used to talk derisively about what she called literature pollution. What she meant was poorly controlled or small studies which were published often in lower-tier journals. The study isn't good enough to make it in a high-level journal, so failing review there, it ends up getting into the literature somewhere else. You may have noticed this problem in assessing important scientific facts. For sure, the vast majority of studies on climate change are strongly suggestive that it is significantly human-caused. But a pundit could sh just share a study with his audience that says something else. There's nearly always a countervailing publication out there somewhere. It's often small and fails under replication, but it's handy to wield if you're looking to gum up the works on behalf of political or economic interests. For this reason, we tend to stick to the most reputable sources of scientific information. The downside falls on those of us who step in with new ideas without a decades-long reputation to speak for us. I receive regular emails imploring me to submit to some rinky-dink journal or another. These are usually very low-impact, even predatory journals on the outer fringe of respectability or outside of it. Some operation somewhere puts together a word salad for a title and then solicits, solicits articles promising a quick peer review process. Assuming the journal even exists, it makes its money the same way respectable journals do. The authors pay a few thousand dollars as a publication fee. That's a few thousand dollars of your money, by the way, my fellow Americans. As long as the submitting scholar is affiliated with an academic institution, they're usually using grant money for this purpose. There are a lot of journals to submit work to, ranging from top of the food chain with the journal Science and Nature, down to these nothing journals where the work will not even show up in the scientific databases we use, like PubMed. Incidentally, the institution you work at pays for access to the usual journals as well, so that you can access them through the online library. In effect, the Academy uses your money to pay for the publication fees and also to pay for access to the journals. It's both a blessing and a curse that there are so many journals out there to publish your work in. I'm talking about regular journals now. The predatory publishing houses don't matter because I don't read their articles and neither does anybody else. I'm referring explicitly to the many hundreds or thousands of journals that actually have an impact factor and show up in a PubMed search. Even limited to just these real journals, there's too much content to keep up with. And this is a problem for me on both sides of the equation. How do I know something is worth my time? And how does anyone else know that my work is worth their time? In theoretical neuroscience, this is a problem. I fear that my ideas do not stand out and get the readership they deserve. It isn't that the field has read my papers on the TICL and decided they aren't very good, although I'm sure that has occurred on occasion. Rather, I fear most of the relevant members of the field have still not bothered to read them. Can you blame them? There's so much to spend your mental energy on, who needs another crackpot theory about consciousness? It was probably a year ago that Christoph Koch said essentially that to me in a reply to my email. He told me we have enough theories already. He saw my paper but hadn't read it yet. Has he read it now? My fingers aren't crossed. One guy who has read my work and found it worthwhile is Colin Hales at the University of Melbourne in Australia. The feeling is mutual. His work and the influence it has begun to have on my thinking is crucial. Will the neurosciences pay it any attention, or will it slip invisibly into the recesses of the database? Together with Marissa Erickson from the University of Southern California, Colin has just published an article called Electro Electromagnetism's Bridge Across the Explanatory Gap. How a Neuroscience-Physics Collaboration Delivers Explanation into All Theories of Consciousness. 
In the previous episode, I gave you my philosophical take on the Turing test as a means to credit consciousness to an artificial system. It comes down to being able to distinguish a model of a conscious agent from an actual conscious agent. A more convincing model, as determined by a referee looking at the behavioral output, does not imply that the model is conscious. One would have to look under the hood to see how the artificial system is producing the behavior. If it's doing so by means of databases and algorithms, then it is subject to John Searle's criticism. It's nothing more than a Chinese room. We have to come to terms with the fact that consciousness, like everything else which exists in nature, is founded in physics. What are the physics of consciousness as occurring in a functioning human brain? That is the scientific question. Here, I am going to examine a central claim made in Hales and Erickson, which they call simply C1. Claim C1 is that all correlates of consciousness described by any neuroscientific theory are actually electromagnetic correlates of consciousness. You've heard me say it before because I've discussed Colin's work and correspondence on the podcast before. Colin likes to use the term ABC to refer to the theories of consciousness. I think he intends it in a slightly disparaging way. IIT, GNW, TICL, GRT, all of us with our fancy acronyms. I take it in good spirit, though. Recall that on this podcast, when I first presented the TICL to you, I said, and I quote, The temporally integrated causality landscape, TICL, is a new theoretical framework for consciousness. You can tell it's a good theory because it has a big fucking technical name. So I get it. There are lots of theories which interpret correlates of various sorts of brain activity toward providing an explanation of consciousness. Some theories are probably closer to the truth than others. And incidentally, Colin Hales is quite favorable to mine. That isn't the point. His point is that all of these theories are ultimately EM theories, and that misunderstanding this is a critical mistake. The EM theories include the TICL too, as I came to understand through personal communications with Colin when I was working on the latest publication. C1 is simply that claim, that all the ABC theories are based upon the electromagnetic correlates of consciousness. In order to understand why he is right about that, he starts his new paper with a useful description of the standard model of particle physics as it applies to neuroscience. Hales and Erickson write, quote, The standard model of particle physics best, but not yet perfectly, describes the physical basis of everything found within the space comprising our universe, along with the properties of space itself. The standard model of particle physics has four quadrants covering four fundamental forces, EM, strong nuclear, weak nuclear, and gravitation inertia. This presents us with a fundamental ontology of forces based on the fields that manifest them. This list is exhaustive. There are no others known to exist. Claim C1 confines us specifically to the EM field quadrant of the standard model. The standard model delivers a stark shift in neuroscience's comprehension of the true nature of the atomic basis of our biosphere. The reason for the C1 confinement to EM fields as originating the first-person perspective is a very simple one. In the context of the atomic basis of everything relevant to life in our biosphere, there is literally nothing else to hold accountable for the first-person perspective because there is nothing else there to choose from. It is all EM field. Choosing from a list of one item is a very simple and attractive choice. It is the job of the rest of Part 1 to demonstrate how the standard model of particle physics proves C1, and how this has been the case ever since the standard model was assembled half a century ago. What has changed, paradoxically, 
is that the standard model news will finally reach neuroscience in the context of a 30-year-old empirical physical science of phenomenal consciousness. The standard model picture of matter made of atoms involves atomic nuclei and electrons as the collaborating particles that comprise the material basis of our biosphere. These are vanishingly small punctate containers of all the deep driving originators and constraints leading to the atomic basis of the biosphere. Synergy between atomic nuclei and electrons is fundamentally defined by their electromagnetic properties, the most dominant of which is their electric charge and magnetic moment, spin, source content. Everything else about the particles, such as their associated mass, in our context of interest, is secondary." Unquote. I want to make sure that you understand the importance of this framing. After all, everything material is essentially electromagnetic in nature, so why should the neuroscience of consciousness require us to bring this fundamental reality to the fore? Neuroscience, as I have studied and practiced it, is essentially a field of biology as it pertains to the nervous system. Behavioral and cognitive psychology has to do with the operations of this biological system. Maybe you remember studying the Krebs cycle in biology class, or how immunoglobulins operate in the immune system. Is it necessary that we investigate these chemical processes in fundamental physical terms? We all know that fundamental physics underlies all of chemistry and biology. Is Colin Hales claiming that the Spanish-American War is best understood as an electromagnetic event? No. His point is not that all phenomena are best looked at in terms of EM. His point is that consciousness is. Is this justified? The paper notes that the tools used to measure the neural correlates of consciousness are electromagnetic in nature. Hales and Erickson write, quote, Consider the ubiquitous measurement known as local field potentials, the electrocorticogram, the electroencephalogram, EEG, and the magnetoencephalogram, MEG. These are all measurements of spatially averaged, time-sampled, temporally averaged electric and magnetic field properties at a nominated spatio-temporal scale. Each of these kinds of measurement bears witness to the EM nature of the measured object. MRI and fMRI, scanning and transmission electron microscopes, atomic force microscopy, and all forms of probes, actuators, and stimulators are also an EM interaction with the studied material. Insofar as brains are able to perform sensory measurement, the same concept applies. All of the sensory modes are, in the end, EM field phenomena, even those that are thought of as purely chemical or mechanical. When we touch something with our finger or another appendage, at the atomic level, EM fields interact with EM fields. That is what touching is. The process of sound waves impacting sensory hairs in the cochlea is also ultimately an EM field interaction. Sound transmission occurs through the propagation of phonons. We tend to think of sound as a mechanical property. In reality, the mechanical descriptor is merely a label. We apply to what is actually an EM phenomenon. Phonons are bosonic, originating naturally within the EM quadrant of the standard model of particle physics through their atomic-level propagation mechanism. When it comes to the artificial control of the operation of brain sig signaling, all the various forms of it involve the exogenous application of EM fields. Consider transcranial magnetic and electric stimulation, or intracranial electrical stimulation. These are clearly and entirely the topical application of EM fields to influence the brain's endogenous EM field system, either for exploratory or clinical purposes. In the same context, brain tissue surface and penetrating electrodes 
also function by delivering EM field system influences and similarly acquire their effectiveness because of the EM field basis of the brain's endogenous signaling systems. Another more recent arrival in, in this area is transcranial ultrasonic stimulation, TUS. This too is an EM phenomenon for the reasons stated in the previous paragraph. Introducing chemicals into the brain is also the introduction of EM field phenomena. Surgery is also an EM field disruption using the EM field of surgical instruments." Unquote. All of this is true, but does it matter? I mean, fundamentally chopping up fish and vegetables and cooking them in a wok is also a matter of EM fields. Should cooking be discussed this way? Obviously not. But here's the thing. Suppose we play a video game in which we run a restaurant. We have to chop up fish and vegetables, cook them and send them out the window, scoring points by getting orders done quickly and accurately. The players are not confused by this process into thinking that fish and vegetables are actually being chopped up and sautéed inside the game console. The game is only a model, an abstraction. This is obvious. Just because it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck doesn't make mean that it is a duck, as we all learned in 1985 when Mario Brothers showed up at the house on a shared cartridge with Duck Hunt. Likewise, the chemical formula written in a textbook is not the chemical reaction carried out on the bench. When it comes to the study of consciousness, however, models are easily confused with the genuine article. The next section is crucial. Here, Colin and his co-author demonstrate the problem with computational theories of consciousness, wherein somehow the transfer of information entails consciousness itself. I have tried to argue the same idea, but using the less defined terminology of causality. I think John Searle is a very effective critic of computational theories of consciousness, too. For Searle, the distinction is between syntax and semantics. For Colin, it's the difference between objective information and first-person perspective. These approaches converge upon the same criticism, though. Indeed, I think they are the same criticism. But in, put in terms of EM, the case is made amenable to science and not just philosophy. Hales and Erickson write, quote, Cognitive computational accounts of consciousness involve abstractions, again, the abstracting away of the EM basis, of brain function that are neuroscience-inspired to an extent determined by the researchers. Cognitive accounts tend to be associated with the empirical investigation of function, with a focus on a wide range of domains, including memory, attention, sensory modalities, motor systems, language, and so forth. These are applied to a descriptive account of development, learning, intelligence, planning, mood, prioritizing, goal-setting, habit establishment, novelty handling, amongst many others. These processes tend to be expressed in information processing terms. In approaching phenomenal consciousness, influential, influential ABCs in this case are the global workspace theory by Bars, the global neuronal workspace theory, primarily developed by Dehane and Shangu, Dehane and Mashur, in global workspace theory and global neuronal workspace, integrated and unified activity of brain regions is said to be conscious. Dehane and colleagues' signatures of consciousness include high-frequency neural firing synchronization across distant brain regions. Under C1, we can now see that however a global workspace might be imagined, the brain implements it as a single unified dynamic electromagnetic field system impressed on space. The term global workspace is a human abstraction of something comprised of EM fields. The cognitive approach's contact with phenomenal consciousness can be understood in a more general sense 
in appreciation of the ABC computation, generally thought of as information processing. When the signal processing or information processing of the brain, such as a global workspace, is regarded as computation, it reveals an unusual relationship between nature and models of nature that only exist in brains. Once a particular aspect of the brain's signal processing is recognized as significant and mentally excised from the tissue for scientific description, the information transformations going on in the abstract model are identical to the information transformations apparently going on in the brain. This relationship between a model and nature is unique to neuroscience. Contrast this with, for example, the information processing that is going on in a kidney that results in purified blood. In fire, combustion, it results in heat. These phenomena are not abstract models of something. In the brain, this identity between a model of nature and the modeled nature would indicate that everything the brain does is done by the model. This uniqueness has been pivotal in the impact that computing has had in understanding the brain. In practice, researchers implement these abstract models on general purpose computers where there is no fixed relationship between the EM physics of the brain and the EM physics of the general purpose computer. This fact must be remembered when trying to construe any contact between the first-person perspective resulting from being a general purpose computer and the first-person perspective resulted from being a brain. If it is held that the general purpose computer has a first-person perspective, then the practitioners have disposed of the specific EM organization of the brain, replaced it with the EM organization of a general purpose computer, and enrolled themselves in the same kind of strong emergence discussed above. The implicit claim is that computation causes the emergence of the first-person perspective associated with the original tissue being modeled, but in a way that is not evident in the model. If this approach is not acceptable, then one could abstract out the associated functional role of consciousness into the model. Then the new model might have the first-person perspective of the modeled nature. Again, the relationship with the origins of the first-person perspective is strong emergence. No necessary relationship between a first-person perspective and the EM physics of the general-purpose computer combination is provided by this approach. The key to understanding this approach's critical weakness is in the above step mentally excised from the tissue. At that excision moment, the particular EM field organization of the brain is lost, and that specific loss involves everything that the excised model failed to capture. The way to see this loss more clearly is to ask, what is the thing analogous to blood filtration and heat in the above examples that may be lost in the mental excising? What goes missing? How would we know it was missing and justify it? If the original EM included delivery of all the information processing content associated with delivery of a component of a first-person perspective, then that information is gone, and its functional role in the natural process goes with it. That is the loss associated with the novel explanandum that is the first-person perspective. It is lost in an apparently benign act of mental excision that until now was all there is in neuroscience practice. This is what the ABC equals cognitive computational correlates of phenomenal consciousness look like under the C1 spotlight. The very thing abstracted away, EM fields organized in the manner of a brain, is the thing delivering, however mysteriously, the first-person perspective. The practitioners involved cannot claim that nothing is lost in the abstracting away of the EM basis of the tissue. 
To scientifically examine what is lost is to experimentally retain the natural EM physics for comparison and contrast with the abstracted away version. Successful measurement of the properties predicted by a model does not prove that there is no other important tissue properties at work, where tissue and model may part company in important, interesting ways. Unquote. Exactly. This is what I was trying to get at with temporally integrated causality. Ultimately, the causality occurring in time is electromagnetic. The dynamics of temporally integrated causality are dynamics of the EM field. So I have proposed the organization for a conscious EM field structure and an explanation for distinct, meaningful contents occurring from a unified perspective. In my first paper, I argued that the problem with existing neuroscientific theories is that they do not position the contents of consciousness within the physical space and time of a common physical structure. My answer is that the point of view from the whole mind evaluates the meaning of its parts. When he extended the invitation to me to write the second paper on the TICL, Colin must have recognized, certainly before I did, that he and I are closing in on the same ultimate target, a real, fundamental identity for consciousness in our universe. Cognitive computational theories of consciousness are interested in how the brain models the environment. A genuine theory of consciousness must be interested, rather, in how the physical brain produces subjective experience. Thank you.